thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Most of us are familiar with the United States Navy's premier flight demonstration squadron, the Blue Angels, and many of us have probably witnessed one or more of their performances. But very few, no doubt, consider just how much planning, research, and simulator time each and every maneuver requires. And when the team has been flying the same aircraft for over 30 years and it's time to transition to a new aircraft, all that research has to be performed all over again, as we will learn this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast with our guest, United States Navy Captain and former Blue Angel boss, Ryan Little Guido Bernacchi. There are some things that we say uniquely on the Blue Angels. One of those is as we finish each brief and we're ready to go fly, we go around the room and, and each person in order says, I'm fired up, ready to go, boss. And uh, I always love that. And then, you know, I would finish the brief by saying, I'm fired up, ready to go. And then we'd go do our flight. And so, uh, you know, that always meant a lot to me. And, and I'm really looking forward to the future with the team going into the Super Hornet. And so I'm excited to talk about it today. I'm fired up, ready to go. Let's talk about transition. in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 46 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Before we talk about Blue Angels transitions, Sunshine, I want to talk about the F-16 episode, man. Another big hit. It was absolutely jello. Now, is there anything you want to bring up though on the? Uh, I guess they call it the F two, right? Yeah. So you know, on all these episodes, there's always going to be a listener, and don't get me wrong, folks, we love it. Keep it coming. But there's always going to be someone saying, "Hey, you didn't talk about this, or you forgot that," and that is certainly the case. We can't make these three hour episodes, although I think some people would enjoy it. But yes, we did not mention the F two Viper Zero used by the Ooh. Japanese Air Self Defense Force. Now, where do they get the name Viper Zero, Jello? Well, I guess they take the Viper and the Zero from World War II days and they put them together. I'm not totally sure. Yeah, the, uh, you're absolutely right about the Viper Zero. So I believe the uh, Mitsubishi A6M Zero is what they're talking about from World War II days, right? And that, that whole venture for the F2, I believe, was a uh, Mitsubishi and Lockheed Martin agreement, if you will, where the Japanese produced 60% of the jet and Lockheed Martin produced about 40 So just over half was uh, native, if you will, to Japan. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And that's why it looks so familiar. And it is one of the variants. But as we said, we didn't talk about all the variants. And we just have to uh, try to decide where to draw the line on some of this stuff. 
Yeah, anything you want to add also about wristwatches, Jello? <laughs> yes, so an astute observer noticed that when I made my little debut, if you will, on the PBS Carrier special, that I was talking about the pitching deck landings with my piece of paper, that I was wearing my Citizen Dive Master watch, which wow. is a watch I've Yeah, it's a watch I've had for a long time. Yeah. I guess I didn't think about it because to me in that setting it's just a timepiece, but I do use it for scuba diving and again, it wasn't something that I bought specifically specifically for the job or anything else. It was just something I happen to have. And it is a nice watch, but yep, uh, someone did point that out and good on them for doing so. Yeah, our just our listeners and their acumen just continue to amaze me, Jello. I, I'm just <laughs> impressed that somebody was watching a, an old reel of you, you on TV and caught that. So bravo. Well, I'm glad it's amazement for you because for me, a lot of times I feel stupid. It's like, oh yeah, how did I not remember that I had an engine failure landing on deployment? Or oh yeah, how did I not remember that? So uh, I think people forgive us. So that's pretty good. Yeah. One more thing, but though from the previous episode on the A10, many listeners pointed out that the difference between a cannon and a gun, Sunshine, although nobody can really point their finger to where they get this, but is that the cannon rounds will often explode, whereas the gun rounds are like just lead projectile bullets. Yeah, that is a great point. I remember reading up some on some Civil War stuff, and they mentioned the difference there. So uh, great, great addition. Cool. All right, Jello. So uh, Patreon, how are we doing these days? Well, let's take it top to bottom this week. We have a new Patreon strike lead, Christopher Deacon, and we have three new division leads, Alex Couch, Cameron Joyce, and Daniel Stasiak. Now, Daniel Sunshine writes something special with his contribution, and he says, and I want to read this for everybody, I've heard you, Sunshine, and several of your guests mention that one of the most rewarding parts of the job was supporting troops on the ground. There are pilots, fixed and rotary wing, from all branches and many different airframes whose lives intersected mine for 15 or 20 minutes in Afghanistan. I will never meet them or even know their names, but I will always be grateful to them. Some of my friends and I are here today because of the missions they performed. All of you have my sincere thanks and respect. And dude, that's thanks enough. We ought to be helping this guy out, but that's pretty amazing. And I guess he just wants to be part of this. Yeah. Thank you very much for that shout out, Daniel. And that uh, first time I read that, it uh, kind of gave me goosebumps, to be honest with you. Yeah, it is cool. You know, this relationship that we have with everybody, it's pretty cool. And it is just something that you don't see in the civilian world, as I'm learning in my capacity. I'm sure you are, too. Absolutely. Hey, so Sunshine, I don't think we have time for our question and answer segment today because you had the opportunity to do your second independent interview. And I just want to jump right into it. Now, first, I had reached out to little Guido, as we will learn here in a moment, uh, a long time ago, and worked through the public affairs office to get him on the show to talk about the transition. And then you really picked it up from there, didn't you? Yeah, it worked out really well, Jello, in that I was on a business trip to Patuxent River, and I had the opportunity just to drive up to Annapolis, my alma mater, and he and I did the interview in his office there on the yard. Well, and as it turns out, you two had some background in the same squadron together anyway. So why don't we jump right into this? Now, we're calling it the Blue Angels Transitions, but you will hear lots of other amazing tidbits about what it takes to be a Blue Angel. So, Sunshine, I'm really looking forward to this. I say we hop right in. Me too. Let's roll. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of having in front of me former Blue Angels CO, Commanding Officer, Captain Ryan, Little G, Guido Bernacchi. Guido, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Shine. 
Hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. So, Jeep, before we get into the Blue Angel transition that we're going to talk about today in depth, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? So, where'd you go to school? Yeah, I went to University of California in San Diego. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, the Tritons out there, I did NROTC. And I went off to flight school in 1996 and did the kind of the normal progression through flight school. Uh, went back out to California to VFA-125, which was the uh, FRS uh, back then for the Hornet. Uh, and I did my first JO tour out there on the West Coast in the Stingers. Uh, then I went up to Fallon. Yeah, I did uh, a couple cruises in 113 and then up to Fallon. I was at uh, Top Gun with a, a similar kind of experience to Jell-O's there. And then I went to VFA-87 on the East Coast at Oceana as a training officer and then to 81, I was in the liners as Who's a department head. Who said it? Yep, there you yep. go. And then uh, up to Newport for the War College, and then back to Lemoore for command. I had VFA 192. And then from there, I, I got a really cool opportunity to go to MIT and hang out with some really smart people for a year on, on a fellowship. So I uh, ended up really, really enjoying that and uh, a great year in Boston. And then um, while I was there, uh, we'll probably get into it. Uh, got selected to go to the Blue Angels, which yeah. was not part of the plan. And, but an uh, epic part. Yeah, yes. and then uh, so we'll talk some about the Blues, and then from there I spent a, an extra year working for the Blue Angels uh, after I turned over, and then now I'm up here at the Naval Academy. Very nice. And um, so would you say that when you were at MIT, Lincoln Labs, did you kind of did your focus change from tactical Navy, if you will, to more big Navy, strategic Navy? Yeah, you bet. That that's first instance. Really, yeah, that's what the Navy sends um, folks, you know, operational background people to places like that so that you can start thinking much more strategically and, and, and really just kind of get out of the, the mindset of, you know, how am I going to employ the weapons to uh, how should, as a country, should we be thinking about strategy, employing uh, our nation's uh, assets and... Um, you know, the politics that go with it. It was it was fascinating, yeah. Totally agree, so thank you very much, G, for your background. So let's talk about the Blues. They started, what, in 46? How long have they been around? Yeah, Can you gosh. give us a little history of the Blues? Yeah, um, so the Blues started in 1946, just after World War II. Uh, Admiral Nimitz saw the interest in naval aviation waning and wanted to give that a, a boost, and so he chartered the team. And so Lieutenant Commander Butch Boris was the first boss he asked, uh, he knew him, Butch was a World War II ace, and he said, I'd like you to um, put this team together. And so in 1946, they started out down in Jacksonville, and they started out with three F6F Hellcats. Um, a few months after the season started, they got a fourth airplane and they were transitioned to Bearcats. So the first season was a mix of Hellcats and Bearcats. So that was the first time they formed the Diamond Formation, which Okay. pretty cool. Very um, cool. A, an important moment in, in my uh, you know, <laughs> things that I'm reverent of is the, the first Blue Angel Diamond. And then um, they, they rolled on from there. So they flew props from uh, 1946 through 1949. Okay. And then transitioned to the F9F Panther, which is the straight wing version of the F9. Initially it was the Dash 2, which was not super powerful, but shortly thereafter the Korean War broke out. And the Blue Angels actually disbanded and oh. and reformed as VF-191, Satan's Kittens. Satan's um, Which, kittens. interestingly, is still what the wives on the Blues call themselves. Do they really? Yeah, Satan's so it's Kittens, kinda, I love Yeah, it. it's pretty neat. So um, they went for about uh, 15 months, went to Korea, and came back. And then Butch Forrest was actually called back to reconstitute oh. the team when they came okay. back from Korea. So 
they got going again and they kept flying a um, little bit more powerful version of the Panther until 1955. And then they transitioned to the swept wing Cougar, which is still an mm -hmm. F9, but with a swept wing. Uh, and they flew that until um, 1957 and then transitioned to the F11 Tiger, okay. um, which had an afterburner. Um, pretty cool. And what's interesting, I'll, I'll segue here for a minute, so we'll sure. pause the history okay, yeah. um, for a couple of little points. But one is, uh, it's funny because the narrator announces this history while we're manning up the airplanes. Okay. And so I've heard it hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of times. And now you're saying it. Yeah, but but it's funny because, and, uh, and usually you're actually talking while you're with your crew chief while yeah. that's going on, but you hear a few of the... The lines and so as i'm thinking about it i can actually hear the narrator saying part of it can it's you really it's ingrained yeah. i love it but usually you're talking to your crew chief about you know what what you did the night before or you know hey where'd you go to dinner or, um you know if it was a real um challenging show or maybe challenging weather he'd usually kind of be quiet yeah these crew chiefs are amazing uh, one of the most special parts of the the team experience was the relationships that you build with your crew chiefs and you know okay. we don't pre-flight the airplanes or anything like that so you climb in and, and strap in and you're gone but you have these really cool conversations with your crew chief sitting on the and did you have the same crew chief the entire I time i had three so you have an okay. alpha and a bravo so okay. they can tag team in and out and okay. then my alpha was on for two years and then i had a different bravo my first year and second year um, but all three of them are, are like family. I mean, just just incredible people. And so you're having this conversation, and some you know sometimes it was just kind of you're it's just small talk. Other times we probably didn't say anything because I was you know they could they were really good at telling kind of reading, reading me of yeah. whether I wanted to talk or or if I need a little bit of a you know go get them today, boss. You know yep, or something. Yep. You know so they were Stroke they were just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they were yeah, yeah. they were fantastic. So that's cool. Anyways, in the background there, and the narrator's going through the history of the team, the progression through the airplane. So it's funny that we're talking about it now. Big digression. But the other thing I wanted to bring up is as we started the the work on the transition, we did a bunch of historical work. And I still live in Pensacola as a retired captain named Bob Rasmussen, who was on the Rasmussen. team. Okay. Yeah, he was number two and number four. He was on the team for four years. And he transitioned from the Cougars to the Tigers, the F-9 yeah. to the F-11. Yeah. And so we were talking to him about that. That was the guy furthest back that we could talk to about, hey, what was the transition like? Oh, and okay. uh, what was amazing was they started the year in, and they did their winter training in the Cougar. And then they started getting F-11s. There was a few issues with the F-11, so they got delayed, but they had both sets of airplanes. And so they would fly the weekend shows in the Cougar and then come back and practice in Pensacola in the Tiger. And partway through the season, this is like unbelievable to Holy me to cow, think about yeah. doing this now. Uh, and then partway through the season, they said, hey, I, we're ready. Yeah, hey, boss, we're good. And they took the F-11s on the road. So different time and place, you know, late 50s versus, you know, 2019. But yeah. um pretty amazing you know and so we had a great conversation about that but anyways the f-11 they flew until from 1957 to 1969 okay and then transitioned to the phantom right uh, about the same brick. time as the air force was flying the phantom okay. on the thunderbirds and they only flew the phantom until 1973 it was a challenging airplane for the the demo and there were some safety issues and um, and is, uh, I'm sorry, is that the only time that the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels have shared a common airframe? Common airframe, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So they, there's some great shots and videos of them flying, you know, the same shows together, you know, one and then the other would go up. And uh, In fact, we're doing that this year um, oh, okay. in Andrews. The Blues and the Thunderbirds are finally getting to fly together. No kidding, here in D.C. Yeah, Very nice. Awesome, yeah. The Thunderbirds came and visited us in 2016. 
2017 and we flew and they flew I got to ride with them we flew their guys it was fantastic but it wasn't for an air show it was basically the locals in Pensacola got to see it and that was that's it. That's cool. Yeah. Now, is there a lot of emphasis on that cross-pollinization? There really pollen? is, yeah. Okay. It's, um, it's, there's so many similarities between what we do and, and our approaches that, that that is just really value-added to share lessons learned, share you know challenges that we're facing. And, mm. and um, so we think that's really, really important. And that's how we were able to sell getting the teams back together officially for a big show. So yeah, it, it's great, and they're, they're great guys. We can talk about that more if you if you want later. But they're I would love they're to. They're superb yeah. guys, and they we we do some things different, but generally the mission is the same, and, mm -hmm. and our approaches. Um, though we might use different words, we mean the same thing, and uh, so it, it was a phenomenal experience uh, working I, with them. I noticed that at Air Force Test Pilot School, great group of guys, right? Individually, and then as a collective, you're absolutely right. They they spoke differently, different terms, I guess, but. The mindset was still very similar. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, you guys were talking about that, you know, in a recent podcast with the French about, you know, we're, we're all basically cut the same. We are cut we from have the same. A little cloth. bit different uh, upbringing, whether yeah. that's you know what country or what service we grew in. So we might say things a little different, but it, it's all it's all kind of the same. That, it it's is pretty neat. A big fraternity. Yeah, isn't it? it's sure a big it fraternity. Yeah. So the Phantom they flew okay. uh, until 1973. And then the team shut down briefly after a mishap in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Okay. And so they kind of did an all-stop and, and reconstituted the Blues as not a team, but as a squadron. So we still actually refer to it as a team, but it, it became officially a Navy squadron and all the things that come with that in terms of programs. The CO was no longer an OIC, he was the commanding officer and flight leader. Etc. And so that kind of marks the beginning of what we would call the modern era, okay. uh, and they transitioned to A fours with that. So, so going back now, uh, you know, forty-five years or so, maybe forty-six now, uh, we kind of called that the modern era: A fours and F eighteens. And the A four oh, is a great airplane. I got to see it fly. I remember vividly watching the A fours fly uh, nice. near where I grew up at Moffett Field. And, uh, and are they still hanging in the museum? They are, yeah, the diamond's oh, yeah. still there on oh, the atrium. Yep. I love it's that thing. Yeah, in you know, Pensacola we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, so any listeners out there, if you're in Pensacola, go to the atrium, go underneath the diamond there, and, and just either lay on the floor or just stand perfectly still and look up, and you'll actually see the diamond still moving. They swing very slightly on yeah. the chains. It's very subtle, but it's like they're still moving through the air. It's really cool, and occasionally they'll drip on you, some hide fluid or something. It's really <laughs> awesome. Those distances that the tourists can see, is that operationally represented? Is that how close oh, it's you guys Oh, it's pretty loose, actually. Uh, oh, yeah, they, yeah, it's more than 18 where, inches? Yeah, oh, based okay, on where the, okay. the hanging beams were, that yeah. they, the, the, the chains that they hung the A4s on, yeah. uh, they couldn't have the diamond as close as they wanted it. And, and actually, huh. it was Bob Rasmussen who oh. brought, made that whole thing happen when he was the director of the museum. So he wanted them to be closer, but the engineers said, this is as close as we can make them go. No kidding. Yeah. So they actually, you guys fly tighter than they're hung in the museum. Oh yeah, that's amazing. A good bit tighter, yep. yeah. So, but they they're magnificent. I mean, that's one of my favorite places on on the planet is that that atrium. So, um, the A4 was was an incredible airplane for the team. And uh, the end of 1986, they transitioned to the Hornet. So the Hornet era, amazingly, is now 33 years old as well. Wow. Been flying the F18 with the Blues for 33 years. So basically, you started back in 46, went through a myriad of airframes. We talked about the different structures organizationally, if you will. They went from a team to a squadron. Can you say that the demo actually survived, the, stayed pretty much intact from beginning in 46 to now? The demo is in the maneuvers themselves? 
Oh wow! Um, so the the maneuvers have definitely evolved, and um, but there are maneuvers that go all the way back. I mean, okay. The, the diamond roll started in 1946. The diamond roll. Still the Excellent. diamond roll. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and um, you know the it, really the demo is just a, a an assembly of the the basic fundamental aerobatic maneuvers. You know, rolls and loops and and turns, and um, we just do them in formation and. The opposing, you know, solos came a little bit later, and and you know that that really highlights the max performance of the airplanes, and uh, you know it looks great. But they're just doing basic aerobatics as well, so it's really just how you put the pieces together, much like you would uh, when it comes to you know dropping a bomb. It's basic aerobatics of getting into that delivery envelope, mm -hmm. uh, air to air employment, whether it's BFM or whatever. It's just it's fundamentals that you're you're stringing together in different ways, and then we just we do them in formation. So. It really has evolved quite a bit, and we changed the show from time to time. We did a few changes over the time I was there, but generally speaking, it's a very gradual evolution. Okay. So, like you said, an evolution based on the technology at the time. Yep. And the, maybe you have a, an idea of how to do something um, maybe better. you got a new idea. We, we uh, as an example, we put the Burner 270, the Diamond Burner 270, into the mm -hmm. show full-time in uh, 2017. Prior to that, it had been a maneuver that we'd only do with bad weather on a flat show, and it was uh, a, it was a right okay. hand turn. And it's a long story, but we were looking at a, a few different ways to change it, and and we ended up deciding if we reorganized the flow of the show, we could create a common ground track. So a flat, a flat roll, a low show, and a high show. Essentially, the the one jet would fly the same sequence over the ground, even if on a flat show we're not rolling but we're still kind of following the same path over the ground mm -hmm. and that simplified things greatly um, but it also meant we had to change the the direction we we're coming in for some things so we said well what if instead of doing a tuck under break we did a burner 270 from the left and uh, we did some some work on that and some analysis and said yeah let's give it a try and we brought it in and it felt good and we thought oh, this is pretty neat the crowd's gonna like this and then as we flew it all year instead of just maybe once a week or something uh, we got better and better at it, and, and it was a crowd pleaser, and so we decided to leave it in. But that's kind of maybe the way something would change, and so those evolve their maneuvers as well. So okay. over time, the show just kind of evolves to the, you know, maybe somebody has an idea. You can go back uh, when, when Axel Foley, Boss Foley, was, was the CEO. Very similar story. They, were, they really liked the low-break cross, but they would only do it on flat show weather. So mm. you can do it at very low altitude. And, they said, this is one of our favorite maneuvers. We should put it in the show all the time. So they redesigned the sequence so that they could fit a low break cross in to the to the every, you know, whether it's flat show, high show, whatever. Uh, so that's usually how things evolve is guys will hey, you know what? I got an idea. And you do it, take it out to winter training, and, and there's a, an approval process for all that, but um, get to put it in the show. Yeah. Cool. So speaking of changes, yeah. why don't we dive into the topic again? Yeah. Here? Talk transition. Exactly. Let's yeah. talk the transitions. So let's start off with what is the Blue Angel transition team? Yeah, great question. So in 2017, we had done a, some initial work, we being the Navy, uh, not me. Uh, in fact, my predecessor, um, Boss Frosch, did some of the, the work early into my first year. He had left the team and came up to PAX and did some evaluations on the Super Hornet and um, our uh, the Chief of Naval Air Training, which is who the the boss of the Blues reports to. So at the time was Admiral Bull, and he, he got the ball rolling to start moving some money towards looking at this to see if it was feasible. And so when that happened, um, we got some great information, but it also it, uh, it said, hey, this would probably work, but we have a lot of questions. 
And so as my time was finishing up, we started talking about, well, hey, what if we just uh, keep Guido here in town and, and maybe he could start answering some of these questions. And so I wrote a proposal up that went to my boss and, and the, then up to the air boss, uh, who was Admiral Shoemaker at the time, who's been on the and podcast the mm-hmm. and said, hey, we think there's some value in really taking a deep dive into this with some, some SMEs, some expertise on the demo while they're available on active duty. And it, I had timing in my career to allow for that as well. So uh, I wrote the proposal that let me run with this. And I'd really like to take my number five from 2017, Commander Frank Weiser, while I with me, because he's an expert at the solo part. I've got the Diamond and the Delta stuff, a very smart guy with a, with a really good um, analytical mind. I said, let us do this full time and give us a year to get the ball rolling. So they agreed and we stayed in Pensacola, but most of our work was not in Pensacola. In fact, uh, we we had an office in the museum, which is a really cool oh, place to dude. go to work. Wow. Yeah. But we didn't we weren't there very often. <laughs> on the road. Um, yeah, we were on the road. So um, so the transition team, in a nutshell, is me and Walleye Weiser as the director and deputy, and we divided and conquered the diamond solo stuff. But we really just worked hand in hand on all the problems together. Okay, so you guys um, are the SMEs, as you said, or subject matter experts for the maneuvers themselves, so the handling qualities. How about, did you have some nav air engineers? Did yeah. you have some PMA 261 Boy, yeah, that's, a, that's right where I was going with this. So yeah, so you know, the two of us though couldn't solve all this. We could get in a simulator and fly a Super Hornet sim and go, yeah, it's pretty cool, but but we didn't really know what was happening in terms of why something might feel different. And we can get into some examples, but the, the really what happens, the transition team really grew from a director and a deputy director that happened to have been you know on the team together to a vast coalition of the willing. And, uh, <laughs> yes. So I consider our team a, a network of really awesome people, and, and not in an order of priority, but um, there's a, a nucleus of folks at PAX River, at NAS PAX, and PMA 265, uh, which is the program uh, management office for the F-18, and uh, both versions, the Hornet and the Super Hornet, and the Growler as well. So mostly engineers in there. Uh, there's a retired CWO5 by the name of Tom Turner who who worked all the, the Bunos, the specific aircraft um, for the team, still does as for, for years, has, has worked which jets go to the Blues and in what order, and, uh, and he jumped in. Um, there's a, a guy named Mike Scooby who's an engineer who is doing all of the project um, building and management for the transition. Um, there's a couple of uh, fatigue engineers um, named Laurel and Devinder, and they, they're doing all the, I don't know if you guys have covered fatigue life um, expenditure flea. We can always um, use more. We talked slightly. Yeah, so they're, they, they are, um, you know, I, I can't overuse the word Jedi when I, when I talk <laughs> about their expertise. And then some really good guys over in the simulator, which, which I know we'll talk about, the uh, manned flight simulator at Pax River, Steve Naylor and his team. And these folks just, uh, they didn't have to do this work. I mean, a little of it, maybe they w- maybe would have fit in their job description. Um, but those folks in Pax just poured themselves into this project. Uh, and, and it was a game changer. And the same kind of thing happened with the Fleet Readiness Center, which I know you're real familiar with down in Jack's at uh, Boeing Cecil Field. Uh, so the, the Boeing Cecil and the Navy FRC Southeast uh, the Which folks is Fleet there. Readiness Center South. Basically, we call it the depot, right? Fleet yeah, Readiness the Center Southeast. There's a there's some some key stakeholders down there that also leaned way into this. 
Uh, we've got the money folks at OpNav, you know, the, on the Navy staff that were critical in funding this. We've got the Chief of Naval Air Training staff supporting us throughout this, all the way up to the Air Boss, starting with Admiral Shoemaker and then now to uh, Vice Admiral Bullet Miller, all buying into this plan. And uh, we even had to get a brief to the Senate Armed Service Committee staff. Wow. And uh, so it's just been a fascinating, fascinating year. And as Frank and I learned what needed to be done and then started carrying this message, we just gained more and more support from this coalition. And so the transition team I really see as this enterprise-wide effort with these little nucleuses of people that are just all in to make this happen. So that's what the transition team is. Well, and when you mentioned Coalition of the Willing, I get it. They weren't ordered to do this. They said, hey, I'm going to spend some additional time, right? They still have their day jobs. That's right. I, mean, so I sometimes these. get an email at one in the morning yeah. from an engineer that, that's full-time on some other project also, but is carving out time to make this happen. And, and I should also definitely mention Boeing. They, they've been doing the engineering work and they've leaned into this as well. So it really has been uh, an eye-watering experience. I've learned a ton mm -hmm. uh, about how the Navy and Naval Aviation works, but it's been really neat. So that's what the transition team is, though our focus initially was much more on just the flying part. The work really grew into everything I just described. Gotcha. And so when you're this coalition, if you will, when they started looking at the different options, was there only one? Was it clearly evident that the Super Hornet was the answer? No, it wasn't. Um, that was, you know, initially we started calling ourselves the Super Hornet Transition Team, and then we changed the name to the Blue Angel Transition Team. Oh, and why would you do that? Because we weren't sure that the Super Hornet was the answer. Um, okay. So that had initially been the thinking. Um, you know, if you go back to 2016 with Boss Frosch and Admiral Bull, they said, hey, go evaluate the Super Hornet and see, see if it works. And so Boss Frosch even flew a Super Hornet with a modified spring, all that the simulator a bunch um, and they said hey this looks like a pretty good way to go but how that fits into the big navy you know plans going forward was a whole nother question uh, and so, will we later get into what the spring is you mentioned yeah we'll okay. talk about the spring the, the okay. afs or the, the artificial fuel system so Thank you. it was not a predetermined outcome at all but we also were really just looking at hornet and super hornet as options and you think well hornet that sounds easy uh, what I came to learn was that transitioning from one airplane to the next is actually the same process. So right now we're flying A through D F-18s, uh, lots 5 through 11. Uh, okay. The C's and D's are lot 10 and 11, lot uh, 8 through 5 kind of going backwards. We've got some A's and D's. Mostly uh, the A's are gone, but there's still occasionally one on the team. And then most of the airplanes are C's and D's. And the Jedi flew almost every flight was a C. Uh, was a lot 11C, but if you go to lot 12, yes. uh, now we start getting into the night attack displays, mm -hmm. the ECS starts to change, the fuel system starts to change, and so the engineering that was done to make the Hornets into Blue Angels, which consists of smoke system with, where they take the gun out and put a smoke tank up front with some pumps and run the, the smoke lines to run the oil back to the, the left engine exhaust where the smoke is generated got an uh, inverted fuel system, um, some pumps on the tops of the tanks, and a, a bunch of sensors and, and controls for that. And then you've got this artificial fuel system. Those are the big things. There's also some cockpit modifications and such. 
So we have this the spring mounted in the cockpit that gives us extra tension on the stick. And why um, would you? Why do you guys prefer to have that extra tension? Yeah. So, so prior to the F-18, all the previous airplanes that we discussed, you could just roll in a whole bunch of trim, mm -hmm. uh, nose down trim, so that if you let go of the stick in formation, the airplane would pull away okay. from the formation. Okay. And so now the pilot has to physically pull his airplane in towards the boss. And in doing so, it takes all the slack out of the stick. Yep. If you can imagine, you know, you're just kind of holding a dumbbell between your knees. There's not going to be any wiggling going on with that. It's just going to be heavy in your hand. And so you can now very precisely control and you're, you're physically pulling the airplanes towards the flight leader as opposed to, you know, having to maybe push away if you're getting too close. So you relax a little bit, you'll move away. And what kind of tension is provided by the AFS in yeah. pounds? Yeah, so the spring um, has four settings, and okay. it's about eight pounds per setting. So, okay. you know, the full four, position four that we fly the show season in is 32 pounds of tension. Uh, that's it with it all the way back. So in, in uh, the neutral kind of flying position, it's a little less, um, but it's heavy. And, and is it a build-up approach with a brand-new blue start out at position one? Yep, exactly. So okay. we incrementally step it up throughout winter training. And definitely uh, you feel it in your arm each step and along the way. But by the time you get to the season, your arm is acclimated. It's like a lot stronger. It's not really bigger. It's just got this great uh, endurance and, and huh. the muscles are just stronger. And, and it's, you stop even thinking about it. But and, and when you're wrestling, we'll say, with that uh, AFS, is it a, a full grip with your, you know, all four fingers and a thumb? Uh -huh. Is it two fingers? It's yeah. Actually, we wear um, wide receiver gloves that are kind of sticky, no yes. and we we wrap the top of the stick grip with. Um, it's kind of like athletic tape, but it, it's a little different. But it, essentially, think of like a tennis racket grip, so that the leather sticks to your glove, and each pilot wraps it their own way, so that it feels right in your hand. Yeah. So each pilot has a custom wrap job. Yeah, and actually our crew chiefs do it for us, but you oh. work with the crew chief. So if they have to change the stick out in the jet, it, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So. so you have an artist and kind of creating the stick so that there's a good stick-human yeah, interface. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of art in the, in the science part of this. <laughs> so at any rate, those are the major things. There's some other stuff they do to the airplanes, but those are the big ones. Okay. And so if you want to go, say, from what we're flying now, mm -hmm. um, lot 10s and 11Cs to lot 12Cs, they have to do a full engineering reassessment, replumb a whole bunch of stuff, and then go out and test it. If you want to go to lot 13 and 14, those two lots are about the same, so you could get two for one there, but same process. You want to go to the Super Hornet, same process. So the cost uh, to do the engineering analysis between the Navy and Boeing, and then the process of actually doing it, making sure it all fits, you know, manufacturing the, the new parts, whatever's required, and then going out and having the test pilots fly it and make sure it flies right is essentially the same no matter what you do for any variant. So when we started looking at our Super Hornets viable, well, we did the engineering work and said yes it is. Um, we could also have transitioned to lot 12s, lot 13s and 14s, lot 12 through 14 which is sort of two engineering processes that we hmm. looked at combining. Okay. Uh, we get some efficiency there. And then lots 15 through 21, the rest of the Hornets, the high lot Hornets, essentially are off limits because they're all earmarked for the Marine Corps, uh, who will continue to fly the Hornet for quite some time. So that was basically our choices, was stay in the airplanes we had, which were down to the last few. In fact, we were pulling some out of uh, storage just to provide some spares for the Blues. And then we could transition to lot 12s, 13s, and 14s at essentially the same cost as transitioning to the Super Hornet. However, 
those lots 12s, 13s, and 14s have very little life remaining. And so it was going to take a lot of airplanes uh, and cost a lot of money to do it. And it could have been done. And it just made a lot more sense from a cost-effective standpoint to transition to Super Hornets that had a whole lot more longevity to them. And when we, when we looked at that, we said, hey, we can get a lot more years out of service out of every Super Hornet that we modify. All the support that goes into the Navy's Super Hornet program now is, is available. So we're, you know, it's an airplane the Navy's flying still. Uh, so we have some savings there. And then the big, big key that unlocked all of this in terms of the way ahead was that through the help of those Jedis that I talked mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. we figured out that there were enough Super Hornets available that were most importantly not combat capable. These are the low-rate initial production or LRIP jets, lot 21s and 22s. So as the Hornet line was finishing, they started building Super Hornets in the same factory in St. Louis. These are those very early pre-production, essentially, low-rate initial production jets. And we looked at how much it would cost to convert those into combat-capable airplanes, and that number was really, really big. Uh, And so we said, hey, these airplanes are available. They're the most cost-effective solution and we're not taking them away from the warfighter in any way. So that really, when we put all that together, is what paved the way to the Super Hornet. That makes perfect sense. It was a very good business decision because the investment was pretty much the same across all the different lots. Now you're looking at the return on the investment, and it was higher with the Super Hornets, which were not earmarked for warfighters. Exactly, and if you go into it with the assumption, as Naval Aviation Leadership did, and the Navy leadership, I'm incredibly uh, grateful of, the assumption was we want to keep the Blues in business. So if that, what's the best way to do it? And so I think we definitely are on to the right answer, um, though we had some really deep dives into all these different options. Okay, so the decision was made. We're going to the Super Hornet. So you and Walleye got to fly the simulator. Now the sims at the Navair facilities down in Patuxent River have higher fidelity, I believe, than the fleet simulators, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So there's a special simulator in Pax River called the Manned Flight Simulator. Okay. Uh, it's really neat. It's the only simulator, at least in the Navy, I don't know if you saw the same thing out in Edwards, where there's an interface that connects to actual aircraft components. So it's not a bunch of code in, in a computer or a rack of computers. It's computers talking to actual flight control computers, actual hydraulic actuators, air data computers. All that stuff is sitting you know, behind a wall. There's, it, it's like all the guts of an F-18 or a Super Hornet or a V-22 or an H-60 or an F-30. The F-35 was actually not quite like this, but so they could plug a cockpit into that. Now you're sitting in a real cockpit with real, real you know, display, stick, everything and the interface and really where the magic is is the the code that connects these two things together so you get a much different response you know when you're working with an actual engine control than on a you know a lookup table that is supposed to replicate what a an f404 engine in a hornet or a f414 in a super hornet does and it's much different than the fleet operational sims that we use for you know tactics and, and maybe some carrier landing practice and stuff but don't fly the way an actual airplane do, although we don't really notice or care for the uses we use it for, you get a much different result when you get in the man flight simulator than if you, say, if we just went to Oceana or Lemoore and, and flew the simulators there. Okay, so uh, this- And then they can control all the variables. So, you know, we could, we could set, control any variable, we could fail anything we wanted. Uh, so it was really the ideal place. 
Wow, so this hardware in the loop, as some folks will call it, right? There you go. Has, yep. has higher fidelity than the fleet simulators because the fleet simulators don't need that fidelity for their training. Exactly. Yeah. Fair enough. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Okay, so uh, your discovery, you and Walla had, was there a lot of handling qualities or flight characteristics differences between the Legacy and the Rhino? There are some, and you know, I, I flew both airplanes in the fleet, and at one point I was dual qualified and was, you know, kind of jumping in and out of them when I was when I was up at Fallon at Top Gun, and you, you got used to it to where you almost didn't even really notice it. But definitely, I would characterize the Super Hornet as it's just heavier on the controls, and it we discovered you know the reasons why for all of this but the big difference is there's a lot more damping built into the flight control logic so it's just not as touchy uh, makes it really stable and nice for what we use it for in the fleet but you, when you want it to really move like a, a sports car or a, in, in this case a fighter jet you're putting a lot more muscle in it but you're usually getting really similar responses so you know the envelopes are pretty similar the roll rates a little bit slower as an example but not much, and it's just that you're putting more force in with your arm to get the same roll rate. Okay, so the metric in test pod school is stick force per G. There you go. Well, how about the thrust, the uh, 414 versus the 404? Yeah, there's actually a good increase in thrust to weight, and particularly below 15,000 feet. And the whole demo, uh, we fly below 10,000 feet. So when you get down in that thick air, it's a pretty noticeable difference. The airplane really is kind of a beast down low. So definitely more thrust from those engines and the engines actually respond differently uh, as well so and why um, is that you know this one uh, was a big head scratcher but what was so neat about it was it, you would never notice this in the fleet uh, although I was talking about it with Sip Wiley who was ah, on, yes, just on the show yeah. of course he's so smart he's like oh yeah I know why that happens and, and he knew exactly but he's the only guy I think that in the fleet that that I've ever met that would have known this at any rate so in a Hornet, when you move the throttles, it's a mechanical linkage to the engine control, which is commanding the, the core of the engine, which we call N2. So there's two stages in the front. There's the N1 is the fan, and then you've got the core. And you're controlling the core fan with the throttles. Essentially, you're commanding an N2 RPM. It does that through fuel flow and nozzle position and some pressure readings and all that stuff. In a Super Hornet, you're commanding N1 digitally now instead of mechanically, but when you change the throttle, you're changing the speed of the fan on the front of the engine, and the core is floating free. Hmm. But what's displayed to you in the cockpit is the core speed. So you'd set a fixed setting, as I would for a maneuver, say the diamond roll or a loop or something, and I'd come out of the roll at a different RPM than I started, but I hadn't touched the throttle. And I was 
really confused about that initially and it was it was causing some weird um you know i'd get overpowered on the say the back of a loop where i'd set the throttle to the to the right setting at the top of a loop and by the time i got to the bottom i'd gain three maybe four percent rpm usually about three percent and now i had too much power so i'm having to increase the pull to, to keep the loop from going below a minimum altitude so i'm scratching my head but the beauty was we're at pax river and all the engineers are there and so I, I asked the PhD that runs the special sim, his name's Steve, and he said, I'm making an engine guy in here. And so in comes a guy named Gary who's really, really smart, and uh, he brings in a bunch of charts, and he shows me exactly why the engine's doing that. And so mm-hmm. once we once we recognized it, we said, okay, well, let's design around that then. let's We can't change that. It's no problem. I just didn't understand what it was doing. But now we can, we can design the maneuver to um, build in for what we call N2 float, to set a power setting that'll account for it to wind up, if you will, to that higher core speed. And we just started planning to it and it turns out it's very consistent and easy to work with. So we just needed to understand what was going on and there's really no other place that we could have figured all that out like we did, except for Pax River. So, and then we said, well, okay, if that's the case, it'd be nice to be able to display this information a little bit differently. And so they custom designed the software so that we have a Blue Angel software suite that gives us the stuff that we want while we're flying the demo instead of what you would need for flying fleet missions. So there's a different system configuration set or SES or really OFP, Operational Flight That's Program, right. for the Blue Angels. That's right, yeah. Now, that was not the case for the Charlies. I'm it, sorry, for the uh, Legacy. It is me. for the Legacy as well, oh, okay. um, but not as nearly as uh, Gucci, if you'd, you'd say. Mostly it just inhibits cautions like, you know, the Solos will take off with their flaps up on purpose, mm-hmm. which will give you a screaming flaps up caution, and that, that's not something that's good. So, you know, we inhibit stuff that way. Uh, there are a few other things that it does, but generally it's just so that their plane is quiet. It's not giving you any special information. With the Super Hornet software for the Blues, it's called Blue 25X initially, and then it's going to go to Blue 28E, and then eventually we're going to need a, a Blue H something, but we'll, we'll get to that uh, at some point. But the, the team should start flying 28E uh, when they get the jets, and it has um, really cool stuff like ground speed in the HUD, uh, nice. It has the distance to your center point marker down to two places, so down to a hundredth of a nautical mile. Yeah. That matters for what we do. Uh, you've got wind, direction, and speed on all your top level displays, which we're constantly referencing. Uh, we've got kind of a, a one-stop shopping display for the, the boss that's got RPMs up on your DDI. We've got trim settings on another display. That So basically you get in, turn the jet on, the, the crew chief should already have the displays set up for you and you don't touch it. So everything you you need. Sorry, so were you and Walleye part of the design advisory group for the new software? That's right, so uh, the the ball got rolling with Boss Frosh, he was emailing back to us saying, hey, what kind of stuff do you guys want in the the software? And so we started throwing ideas at him, but then we got there and started working with the beta versions and said, hey, we want this and we'll move that, make this bigger, and it was fantastic, yeah. All right, so we talked about the engine, the difference because of the computer-governed mechanization, if you will, that would be the FADEC, right? Full authority digital engine control. How about the speed brakes? Is there any difference? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, the speed brakes on the Super Hornet, um, you don't have that big speed brake between the tails. What the jet does as you command speed brakes is it splits the aileron and the flaps. So the ailerons go up and the flaps inboard of the ailerons go down and it creates kind of a, you know, like a clamshell door opening up, almost like an F-16 speed brake. 
uh, on the back of that jet, but it's the whole wing doing it, which saves a lot of weight. Um, you do have these little spoilers that will dump the lift off the leading edge extension, um, but those don't come out until you're almost all the way full commanded speed brakes out. So, so one of the neat things about, you know, you asked, does it fly different? Well, yes, it does in some ways. Um, it accelerates really nicely. It doesn't um, tend to bleed as much unless you really want it to, you know, so you pull the power back. But if you have the power up, uh, it'll sustain energy pretty well down low. Um, the roll rate's a little bit more um, sluggish. It's not quite as crisp as the Hornet. Um, and it's just got that heavier feel. But but one of the other characteristics of the Super Hornet, just being a bigger airplane, I think it's got a much thicker wing. You know, the camber is a lot thicker. It just, it seems to fly like a more draggy airplane. So when you come mm -hmm. off on the power, it seems to kind of the air grabs it better than it grabs a, a Hornet that just kind of slips right through it. Which is that a plus or a minus? Well, it's actually a plus. So you've got plenty of power, plenty of gas. So you're not worried about, you know, you, you have excess energy for most anything you would need. It's nice to be able to have a little bit of friction on the airplane, be able to slow down in a very controllable, precise manner. So I think that aspect of the formation flying will be really good. I think for the flight leaders, it'll be great because the biggest change that I would say across the board procedurally is that I, I should not need speed brakes on the backside of the loops. And so that's really nice. You go up in a, you know, a loop, whether it's a burner you know, up or, or you know, military power sort of profile, on the backside, we'd always put either half or full speed brakes out, depending on, uh, so full on like a dirty loop and, and half for the rest of the loops. You do want it on the dirty still, but not on the rest of the uh, the loops. And so that simplifies things greatly. It makes the airplane a lot easier to fly a smooth backside profile because you don't have this pitch transient as the speed brakes come out and all the wingmen trying to match that. And then the same thing on the out of the maneuvers, you, as you clean up for the next maneuver, you can skip all that and, and just set the power and, and set up for your next maneuver. So it really is nice. I don't know how many hundreds of loops I did in, in the simulator and a few in the airplane as well, but it's really nice. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to hear what that first boss and the, those first first uh, five wingmen say about the backside of the loops. About yeah. the work that you and Walleye have been doing and the we, team. We, and really, uh, it was Boss Frosch that had the idea when he first got in. He said, you know, you might not need the speed brakes. I, I like it without it. And, but check it out you know so we, we ran it a gazillion different ways and it, it seems to make sense yeah so your your description of the speed brake function we'll call it since there's not a dedicated control surface begs the question so if you've already started to use the control surfaces and introduced them to the slipstream if you will to slow things down now you've already used some of their displacement so as a result do you have less available authority we'll call it so the answer is yes but it's not something that we have a chart for okay and you know you've flown both airplanes in the fleet mm -hmm. it feels a it's, it gets a little looser with mm -hmm. the speed brakes out but you still have plenty of control authority the good news is we only need them on the uh the dirty loop which is a, a flown as a, at a fairly wide set okay. and you got the wheels down and everything else so you're already in a, a much different flying regime anyways and so the answer is i don't exactly know because we haven't flown two super hornets with the artificial field the afs spring in formation yet mm -hmm. that is planned for um, probably about four to five months before the team should get the jets we're gonna have some expo angels go do exactly that kind of research so we should have everything set as w as we see it best and then we're gonna have X's go out and fly it'll probably be guys that are currently on the team now that'll go validate you know start real loose and make sure and then ease into what they're comfortable with saying yeah this matches what we did in the Hornet 
it's better, it's worse, maybe you need to back it out a little, or nah, it's actually great, there's no issues here at all. Which is what I think we'll see in most places, but my guess is there'll be a few things in the airplane that, yeah, we, we couldn't we couldn't know that in the simulator. And so, and, and you can't know it by flying a single airplane like Walleye and I have done. You need to have airplanes information. And so we'll just take a real conservative approach and ease on in there with guys that, that are fresh out of flying the, the demo in the Hornet. That makes perfect sense. Okay, so we talked about about 35% more thrust, about a third more fuel too, if memory serves, about 33% or so. You're looking at the wing area, it's bigger, but it is heavier. So when it comes to wing loading, looks like the numbers wise, there's not much of a difference, right? It's reported Legacy is 93 pounds per square foot, the Rhino is 94 pounds per square foot. So wing loading, I tend to think of uh, landing characteristics specifically around the boat. Wing loading, do you see any difference there? Not much. It feels lighter. It feels like it's a liftier airplane. You know, I think if we look at the numbers, it's, it seems like not very much, you know, almost negligible, a, a few percentage points. But the big thing I tried to target off of that feel and see if it worked was to just slow some maneuvers down a little bit, which you could do with, with uh, lower wing loading. So instead of zorching, you know, through the air show airspace at 450 <laughs> knots, which hey, could fun. we do this at 400 knots, say, for okay. a, a loop? And what I found was... Uh, on the looping maneuvers, I could shave 20 to 30 knots. So a maneuver I would want to fly like the line of breast loop or the loop break cross with the Hornet, I would want to target about 430 to 440 on the nice smooth air day. Okay. If it was real bumpy, I'd slow it down a little bit on the end and then add more power going over the top. But ideally, you start it nice and slow and don't touch the power until you have to pull power back on the backside so there's just less going on. The, you know, The less boss can do, the better the, everything will look. The wingman will really appreciate it. And so I found that, you know, something I'd fly at um, 440 to 430 in the Hornet, I could fly at 420, maybe 415, all the way down to 400 pretty comfortably. But I, I liked that 410 to 420 in the simulator. And we flew on that subject. We, we used a standard air show day, not a standard day. So about an 18 to 1900 foot density altitude is what we would typically would see throughout the summer months as we'd fly took it down to um, you know a cold day in El Centro and then the guys in in packs the sim folks uh, loaded up the all the imagery and, and data for Reno's air show that's about an 8,000 foot density altitude okay. show that both Walleye and I had flown in 2016 and so we we flew the whole show there as well and uh, making sure that we had enough power and that the, that the numbers were working and, and as you'd expect you have to add more power uh, but we were able to really capture hey it's it's this much power more um, in this uh, simulator environment because it's just so high fidelity. So all that goes into the you know the pass down the manual that we're writing for the team that's gonna get in these jets and go fly. Yeah, so you talk about the difference in power additions, we'll call it. So I think of thrust to weight ratio. Yeah. So it's reported the Rhino is about 0.93, whereas the Legacy is 0.96. So a little bit difference. That would be uh, basically on takeoff, if you will. Yeah. And it boils down. To, I think at 50% fuel, a Rhino is 1.1, and a Legacy is 1.13. So percent difference whatever very small do you just that's the quantitative side how about the qualitative have you noticed the difference just flying it in the yeah sim? i was i think those numbers maybe aren't for a slick jet so what we found in the simulator in my fleet experience as well is that a really slick rhino and these are these are um so they don't have a combat configuration okay uh, and they're the the first ones built so they're really light is that you actually have more thrust to weight. It's more in favor of the Rhino, and but the big difference is from a full bag of gas to 50% fuel is a whole 
lot more. You know, it's the difference between 9,000 pounds to 4,500 pounds. It's 15,000 pounds to to 7,500 pounds. So there's, you're, you're burning through more gas, but as you start getting below that, the ratio starts going up really fast. So towards the end of the flight, it gets really, really powerful. Nice. So yeah. it's a rocket ship. It's a very dramatic yeah. increase. Now, yeah. For me, I didn't. I don't use that much gas. The oh. solos use more. So we okay. could actually. We looked at light loading the jets, but we're we're not planning on doing that. By and large, there might be some, you know, rare cases at high density altitude and take a few thousand pounds out. But there's so much power available that there was no benefit in light loading the jets, and you know, giving them less than a full bag of gas. But the options that open up when you do have a full tank, you can fly air shows in places we couldn't currently fly air shows because there isn't a resting gear close enough. So it gives us all kinds of contingency planning options, allows us to go to places we normally wouldn't go, okay. uh, and allows you to account for weather, or, you know, compound issues on the airfield or whatever. So it's really just it's money in the bank for the guys that'll be out flying, guys and gals, hopefully. Nice. Final aspect, I would say, is the uh, thinking of handling qualities. We talk about stick force per G, but I, th- I believe the Rhino has a reduced longitudinal static stability margin. So for you guys, listeners, go back to the uh, deep dive number one, we'll talk about that. <laughs> but basically, G, it's, it's more, I believe it's more maneuverable slightly in, in pitch than the Charlie, would you agree, or than the Legacy, would you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, while I actually, now it feels like you're working harder to do it, but you'll get a bigger response. So uh, while I can actually, in the simulator, he can make the tails hit the ground when he rotates into the dirty roll. So we've done a lot of work on that, and it can be done in the jet too. Uh, and that's just a function of it'll rotate so fast, and then as you, as you stop rotating, the stabs go from being trailing edge really high to get the nose going, they'll come back down to counter that as you capture your, your pitch attitude, okay. and they'll dig into the okay. runway. Oh. So um, easily mitigated, um, but one of the things that we, you know, just one of a long, long list of things that we discovered flying the manned flight simulator down in PAX. Uh, and I could go on and on, on oh, just, oh wow, that's amazing. Hey, why is this happening? And then we bring in some specialists that, hey, they make a phone call and they show up in the simulator with us. And like, yep, that's, this is happening because of that. And you go, wow, cool. Uh, and so, and a lot of that knowledge is with the the guys that actually run the simulator because they're just such experts on how an F-18 flies. The flight dynamics guys are just unbelievably wise and experienced. So we've talked about the handling qualities of the Rhino, the differences we've compared and contrast the legacy to the Rhino. Now, for example, you just mentioned walleye banging the stabs off the ground, which is not gonna happen. And yeah. he, he explored the envelope, we'll say, right? right. Do you foresee any kind of maneuvers being removed or, or dramatically modified with the integration of the Rhino? Yeah, that's a great question, Sean. We get that one all the time. You know, there's a, there are a lot of people that follow the Blues pretty closely, and that's that's on all their minds. So when we got into the simulator, our, our process, a little bit different than we talked about how we might go modify a maneuver or evolve the demo. Instead, what we set out to do was to recreate the Hornet demo first and be able to fly it in the Super Hornet the same way we flew it. Uh, so basically replicate it. Different mechanics, maybe different power settings, different feel to some things, but recreate the entire Blue Angel demo, Diamond Solos, Delta, in the simulator. And once we did that, now we had a baseline that we could compare. And then from there, we've taken a look at a bunch of different things, but our two goals, once we had that, so think of it as a three-step problem okay. or process. Step one is recreate the demo. Uh, and in that is where we had all these discoveries, you know, so, whoa, what just happened there? Okay, cool, didn't expect that. That makes sense, easily, easily accounted for. 
etc. Then let's do some risk mitigation. Let's attack this demo at every potential critical part we could think of with the worst case scenarios. Engine failure, say in a, in a dirty loop from one, from four, from two, three. Same thing for the solos, say the high alpha pass. You know, what happens if you lose a motor at 35 alpha, 34 alpha at 500 feet or something? And what we found was in, in those discoveries, there were, there were quite a few differences from the Hornet. And we could also get in the Hornet sim that was in the next bay over and go make sure that the Hornet was matching. And then we could, we could also pull for maneuvers. We could compare data from the simulators from data from shows we'd flown in actual jets and overlay them. So that was really cool getting to, hey, is, am I flying this the same? And then we could go back and go, yeah, on this day, you flew it exactly like that, or you're flying it a little heavy or something. It was pretty fascinating. So all this big data kind of stuff. And so we did a ton of risk mitigation to try to anticipate anything bad that could happen, figure out if, it, if it's a, a game changer, like, hey, I can't fly out of this. And if so, that maneuver has to come out because I'm, it's not worth risking, a, hey, this maneuver is great as long as an engine never fails that's not in the risk calculus going forward. And then we were able to apply actually a bunch of those lessons back to the Hornet and feed information back to the team, update their manual. And we even had the guys come to the simulator in packs and we showed them, hey, this is the way to fly out of say a, a dirty loop engine failure, different from what we thought before from flying it in fleet sims. We think this is a better way to do it. And we know that this is much better data that we've built this plan off of, um, much more real world you know, scenario, environmentals, et cetera. So we did a ton of that. Flight control systems, the engines, AOA failures, we, we, uh, VEN failures. We looked at everything historically that breaks on a Super Hornet. And, and then the, the VENs, sorry, not to the... The variable exhaust nozzles, yeah. So the, the turkey feathers that open and close on the back of the engines. And we, um, we looked at all the historical occurrences. Uh, we found some interesting things in where things occurred what flight regimes would this be part of the demo or not? And we worked hand in hand with the experts on that to figure out, okay, so if this, then what's the worst place that could happen on this maneuver? And then we did that in the sim until we could figure it out. So that was phase two or really step two in the in the phased approach was risk mitigation. And there's still a little bit of that that Walleye's doing and, and I may even drive down to PAX and do a little bit more, but uh, we think we have all those things worked out. It's more about just refining how we want to write this for the next guys. And then the last thing was fatigue. So if you look at the, the fatigue burn that we put on these jets, it's pretty high. We've been, you know, the, it's an issue with the fleet as well. As you remember from when we were in the fleet, people started really looking at that about the time we were in VFA 81 together. Hey, how fast are you coming in the break? How many Gs are you pulling? Uh, you gotta start spacing some of your training out so that you're, or moving it between airplanes so that you're not killing one airplane's wing route uh, and while another one's fine, so just managing it. That's a, a thing that the Blues have been doing for a long time, but when we looked at the life available on the jets that we had earmarked, we said, boy, we, got, we have more flight hours available than we have fatigue available if we keep burning it at the rate that we're burning it. Okay. And so how can we change that so that those two things match? And even how could we move the flea burnout to where if we could extend the hours on the Super Hornets, just like we've done on the Hornets. You know, the Hornets were built as 6,000 hour airplanes and we're flying eight, 9,000 hour airplanes, 10,000 hour airplanes in the fleet, up to 9,000 hour airplanes on the Blue Angels. How can we push the fatigue out so that that's not the limiting factor? 
And so uh, that was working with the engineers again. We did a t we had meetings at first, and we we started looking at analysis. And pretty soon, the engineers and the pilots, you know, me and Walleye, and this was particularly Walleye who's just really rolled his sleeves up and and dove into this. And it's mostly a, a solo problem as well. So he had a, a really good working knowledge of where they're pulling the hardest throughout their profiles, the five and six profiles. They really started revealing to the collective effort. Okay, here's where you're hurting the airplanes. And so then we went and looked to redesign to take those parts out. So not a whole maneuver, but say, a, you know, the worst thing we can do is like a negative three G push, uh, which we had several of in the demo. Hmm. So what would happen if we took those out? Well, this is the flea result when we fly it in the simulator, uh, which would, you know, we could fly the simulator and match what we'd get in the airplanes. And so then we assumed that within some reasonable, you know, accuracy, if we can get new measurements with those modifications, that's a, a real savings that we'll see when we get to the actual airplanes. And so without trying to change what the crowd has seen on Showline with just a few small exceptions, we've completely changed the, the entire flea burn profile for the demo. And that's a game changer. And th that actually was a big part of unlocking that, hey, if we transition to the Super Hornet with the flea reduction work to date, we're gonna get this much life out of them. Uh, and that's a game changer. So that really is those three things that we've been focused on for the last year. And then to tie all that together, we're rewriting the multi-hundred page manual to be all Super Hornet. And so we're taking the existing demonstration stand, the standardization manual, going through and updating each maneuver to how we now fly the Super Hornet and then including a differences discussion on each maneuver. So was, is Walleye a test pilot school graduate? He's not, no. Nope. Well, I would say based on our discussion today and, and your uh, walleye's involvement and in what you characterize there, that you guys are definitely honorary grads. So, <laughs> so you got the Top Gun thing, you got the Blue Angel thing, right? And now you're a test pilot too. So good uh, on you, man. I, th yeah, I think yeah, you've I think, explored I think, every uh, corner. Walleye gets the uh, credit for that. But um, <laughs> it's, it, was like a, it was a really neat process to work together on. And, yeah. and we did some adjustments on the diamond side as well, but that wasn't the main culprit. It's more in the rendezvous for the diamond. But I've kind of avoided your question of, did you get rid of any maneuvers or change any? And uh, I'll give you, so uh, there's one maneuver that we think we should just take out. It can be flown, but it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to have the, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's just okay. not gonna look that sharp. So essentially there's nothing we can't do in the Super Hornet that we do in the Hornet, but there's one maneuver that we think, eh, that one's not so great. So if we take that one out, uh, it's a solo maneuver, then we need to take a diamond maneuver out to balance the show. And so we've got two candidates narrowed down to, we'll, we'll either take one out or the other. And we developed show sequences that will work to reconnect the maneuvers in either case. And then the other part to that story is it helps with the fatigue. So we get even more savings by doing that, both by flying shorter flights, which, you know, Two or three minutes times six jets times 400 flights a year starts to add up. The aggregate is huge. Yeah, okay. and I start adding that up over a decade, and so yeah. suddenly two minutes per jet can can matter. But it's more about it. We're just there's less G's involved with that with those two maneuvers out because we're not rendezvousing into them or pulling G's on the turnouts or whatever. So there is some savings by doing that. It also dovetailed with a request from the air show industry to shorten the shows a little bit. You know, the, it's a very symbiotic relationship between the demonstration teams, the Thunderbirds, Snowbirds, the Blues, and the airshow industry. Without the airshow venues, we, we're out of business. And, and at the same time, without the jet teams coming to the shows, 
a lot of their ability to put on a great show goes away, and the, and and essentially you just see the the industry eventually shrinking to where it can't sustain. And so we want to work with them. They want us to you know be the closing act usually, but we I, I never thought of us really as the main event. We were just sharing the, the stage. We just usually flew at the end of the day. But if we can carve out a little bit of time, that's good. That helps. So we're we're taking steps in that direction. And then our that's for a high show. Our, our you know medium and, and low shows, we call them the low show and the flat show actually, based on the weather, are, are shorter anyway. So it all kind of fit together to shorten the show a little bit, but I won't tell you what those maneuvers are. Okay, and we'll then at, stay tuned. Yeah, and at the same time, we've made some maneuvers better. So there's gonna be some ah. cool stuff mm-hmm. uh, that capitalizes on some of the strengths of the Super Hornet. And then um, there's some maneuvers that uh, eh, we just kind of thought, this this is due for a, a spruce up. How could we do this maneuver different or connect? You know, between these two maneuvers we like, there's a maneuver that we, we don't love that we maybe fly on a flat show or something. Could we redesign the show sequence so that there's something really cool, new, fresh, uh, and that that would accentuate the Super Hornets, you know, size and shape and all that stuff. And so we think we're onto something there too. And we've got all that worked out in the simulator and written up to present to the team that transitions and say, hey, here are your options essentially. But we think these these are your best bets and recommend going this road. But ultimately it'll be up to those guys to, to you know, I say guys, but hopefully guys and gals to get in there and figure it out. You pass the torch. So there is a lot of science to this art of, we'll call it tweaking the air show. Yeah. So from the business perspective or the business case, you're looking at flea, right? But then when it comes to the wow factor of, and the crowd, if you will, you may detract a little by removing a very consequential maneuver for flea, but then you've bumped up some other things. So basically the wow factor is very much still alive. I think if anything, as the team settles in and they really they really get comfortable flying this jet and, and hopefully in that first season, it's gonna be the best demo ever. That's, it definitely won't be worse. It'll be a little bit different I don't think anything will be degraded, and I think you know there's just going to be a, a great amount of excitement. Uh, you know, Top Gun Two is coming out about Woo-hoo. the same time. <laughs> They're flying the same jets. Yep. Um, it's the jet that the fleet's flying. I think there's just going to be a lot of really collective goodness to the Blues, yeah. uh, starting an era with the Super Hornet and then sustaining that for a long time. Nice. So we've talked about our background together, your background coming up through the ranks. We talked about the transition team. We talked about the decision to go. To the Rhino, we talked about the handling qualities, flight characteristics, differences. We talked about how to groom the show may or may not happen. What does the future hold for you? Are you going to continue to shepherd this process through to completion? That's right. So, um, you know, we asked for a year and we didn't know how long it would take, and we were given a year, and so a year was not enough, but it got us through all that planning and, and ex- exploration. So now it's mostly out of our hands. It's an execution phase that's going on with all those stakeholders I talked about to actually produce the airplanes. They're already working on them. They're in production, if you will, for the modifications and all that. So now my role on the transition team is mostly to, to sit back and watch while I do all the great work that, that <laughs> still is ongoing. And he's sort of the, the central hub for the continued efforts. And I'm just mostly maintaining awareness uh, via email, phone calls, that sort of thing. Occasionally, I, I can I can either you know reach in and provide a little bit of guidance uh, direction if I, I think there's value in that, or I can you know if we need somebody with who is a former flight leader, a, a boss to call somebody and talk, I can do that. And then chiefly, I'm I'm here to advise Sinatra through the process, so I'm uh, essentially on call. 
and he worked that out with my new boss up here, Admiral Carter, that, hey, do you mind if, if uh, Guido still does some, some work on the side? And, and I'm more than happy to do it and, and really uh, pleased to still be involved in the process. But most of the work is being done by that, that broader team, and they're all working with Walleye, who, who this is his full-time job. He's instructing the T-45 and working this as his full-time ground job. Final question, I promise. This has been a fantastic interview, G. How did you get your call sign? Oh, uh, gosh. So I, I have about five call signs, but we'll start, we'll go chronologically and I'll try to be short. Fantastic. So oh, take your time. I, I walked into my first fleet squadron, uh, the Stingers, VFA 113, and the skipper said, Guido. And I had no idea who he was talking to, but he was talking to me and I walked up to shake his hand and uh, he said, you're Guido. And I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, he said, I've always wanted a Guido in my squadron and you're it. But then I proceeded to do every single stupid trick that a nugget can do, right? I, I made all the mistakes, all honest mistakes, but I made them all. And the squadron must have tried a dozen different call signs for me, but everyone just had gotten used to calling me Guido or Guides or, or G by that point and it stuck. So really the Guido uh, and G sort of variants started then. And then I went to Top Gun and there was a Guido there, Guido Guyman, who's a legendary, he's an A6 pilot in Desert Storm, he's an F-14 pilot, he's the BFM SME, he's got a distinguished flying cross, and then there's me. And so uh, he said, there will only be one. So um, <laughs> so I there therefore uh, was little Guido from that moment on. And then uh, as you guys may have talked about with Grand, there's this murder board process that's really arduous and um, you get through to the end and one of the things they, they, they essentially vote, the Top Gun standardization officers, the standos vote on every change that you proposed. And they decided to vote on my call sign slide, which said Little Guido on it. And I didn't know this was up for debate because this, oh, by the way, Guido Guyman was a commander and I was a lieutenant. So it seemed like <laughs> it had been settled, uh, but they voted it into the official Top Gun stand record that my call sign was now Little Guido. So there's then derivations of that. There's LG, Little G, there's Guido with parentheses for LSO yep, speaking yep, about yep, it. Yep. Um, so, uh, so Little Guido is my official call sign uh, in the Top Gun Staten record. So that, I mean, you can't... Let the record yeah, show. That, that's <laughs> it. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, as you get a little bit older, uh, if you're lucky, you get to have a squadron and so people call you skipper. And so that meant a lot to me. And then with the blues, it's boss. And that's, you know, symbolic of the going back to boss Boris and it's the commanding officer and flight leader kind of wrapped into one, which is a little different than just being the skipper uh, because you're leading the demo in the one jet. And so boss means a lot to me too. And I never mind when people call me that. So yeah, so any of the above works just fine. Nice. Yeah. Gee, there's one final thing we always say in the fighter pilot podcast. Would you be so kind? Let's get out of here. There you go. See ya. Whew, wow, Sunshine, that was amazing. I wish I'd have been there for that. What a great interview, dude. dude uh, that guy, gee, man, he's, yeah, he's definitely one of my mentors. <laughs> just a big brain and just a fantastic, socially well-adjusted, let's call him. So, yeah, he's a great, great dude. Good time. Well, they don't pick bosses off the street. These guys are well-groomed, they're well-spoken, and he did a fantastic job. I just am blown away at how much background, I mean, I guess I never stopped to think about it. I should have, but you know, of course they don't just get in the airplane and go fly together. I, I can't believe, I guess, how much 
background they put into each maneuver in the simulator and not just each maneuver but what happens if we lose a flight control surface here or an engine fails where are we going to go and it sounds like they know exactly how they're going to handle something in the middle of an upside down dirty loop they do man the rigor they put into their we'll call it a tedious science is uh i was very impressed too and the level of detail and attention to detail really was just stunning for me too jello i had no idea also that they have their own software yeah, right. I know. The uh, Well, how about the even wearing the wide receiver gloves and the tennis racket grip yeah. on the stick? Just <laughs> custom tailored, if you will, to each pilot. Well, it just goes to show what I've always said, which is you go to these air shows and you see this amazing performance. And what do you think about? You think about six cool looking loud aircraft and then the pilots and their swagger when they get out and come to the line and shake everyone's hands. But golly, there's so much more that goes into it. And of course, we're just talking in this setting about the background on the maneuvers and the simulators. Of course, we could do a whole other episode and we probably should on what goes into the maintenance and the preparations of these aircraft. Absolutely. And hopefully the all the detail that was just kind of divulged in this episode will really help our listeners to even more appreciate the blues when they see them next time at the air show. For sure. Well, there were plenty of new terms, and we will add those in our glossary as always. And Sunshine, you and little Guido spoke for about an hour and 45 minutes. I did my best to whittle that down into an episode size segment. And for our Patreon division leads and above, we will put the rest of that together for you as bonus content on Patreon. How's that sound? Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I had. Uh, he's such a good, good guy, great guy, really, that I honestly thought we spoke for about 30 minutes till I looked down at my watch. And I mean, it's one of those kind of encounters. So, Well, you guys went into a lot more background that I hated to cut because it was just so good. But there's stuff about your first squadron together. There's even stuff about his lovely bride, Becca. Yes, absolutely. She, another great American. Right. Yep. And so all of that is available on Patreon for the division level and above. We encourage you to go over to patreon.com, search for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and you can observe that bonus content while helping support the show. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. Although, Sunshine, I will say that we did work through the Blue Angels Public Affairs Office to facilitate this interview with Little Guido. Yeah, thank you very much to the PAO folks there. Yep. Well, Sunshine, we will be back to our aircraft series on the next two episodes. And I don't want to give it away, but the next aircraft is a pretty popular aircraft because of our guest who happened to write a very famous book that was turned into a movie about it. I am excited to hear this interview. Awesome. All right, dude. Well, I think that'll do it for this week. What do we always say, Jello? <laughs> Let's get out of here. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line, 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget, share us with your network. Thanks for listening. All right, dude. That was-
Keno Austin. Ah, that was sweet. good. Man, we were we were deep in we, the weeds. We, huh? we jammed it. It was good. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.